And if you do pick up that book, there are stories and, and uh, accounts of, of some of those experiences that Harry and, and Phyllis had there in, in uh, the Congo and, and with the hospital. And you can read some of, the, some of the more details on the ministry that they did there among much of the ministry they did and, and a neat little story about how the hospital got that name. Uh, or, and that name was changed. So, so it is an opportunity for us, like I said, to, to partner because as Kathy goes to be a part of that, certainly as she shared with you, deep connection because of the ministry of her mom and dad. And, uh, and again, and it's great to have mom with us today uh, and, um, and their, their work and their missionary work. But she also goes as, as part of our church family. And so it's an opportunity for us. Now, um, I do want to encourage you if, you, if you do want to donate supplies, do look at that list uh, in the, the Sun-Times, we'll get it to you. I'm going to say that we, we need, really need to stick to that list, correct? Yeah. I know sometimes we have a tendency to think, oh, well, maybe they could use this or, or maybe they could use that. Let's not do that because Kathy's going to have to get those supplies um, to Africa. So we don't want, we want to kind of stay with the stuff we know that they need, um, not the stuff we think they might need. So, um, so anyway, and you can certainly talk to Kathy about that um, about that as, as she'll be available and, and certainly in the weeks to come as we, uh, and we'll have a chance to, to do a blessing for her before that trip. So, uh, so keep that in your prayer and certainly uh, looking forward to hearing, to hearing about that. I was, I, the, the statistic you gave, that hospital serving 140,000 people, uh, it's amazing the work and the ministry that, that is done through those who are, who are faithful. And, uh, and that's a good segue into the scripture this morning. Uh, that, that call to faithfulness, that call to obedience, as, as I was thinking about this morning, knowing that Kathy was going to share, uh, I, I instinctively went to the, the scripture that I associate with that call into to ministry, not just the mission field, but for all of us to, to be followers of Christ and what that, the, that means for us. And that is the, the, the words that Jesus speaks at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the, what we know is the great commission. And for some of you, this is really, really familiar scripture because we talk about it frequently. But this is kind of the, the call that we're all given. And, and I wanted to start with that as we begin to, to kind of think through as we celebrate the work of others in the mission field, um, what, what we're called to and what, what Christ's um, invitation and, and expectation is for us as his followers. So let's read Matthew um, Chapter 28, the last uh, four verses there, 16 through 20, this is what we read. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And brothers and sisters, we pray here God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let us, let us pray. Lord, we, uh, we do pray that you would not only inspire us as we hear the stories of those who have served faithfully, but, but that you would challenge us in these moments as we listen to these words spoken not just to your disciples, but spoken to us about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Help us to live into this, to grow in faith, and to serve with obedience. 
we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen and amen. Wednesday night, I think it was Wednesday night, Wednesday or Thursday, uh, got a, um, a phone call that uh, Les Massigale, many of you know Les, I don't think, I want to make sure I don't see Les here this morning, um, Les had to go to the hospital, he had a little bit of a, uh, a health scare, and so he was, he was in the hospital, he'd been taken to um, Manatee, and so, uh, so I was able to get out and went out to the hospital to see him, and, and his, two of his daughters were there, and, and his son-in-law. And when we got there, Les was doing pretty well. It was, he was in good spirits and doing well. He was sitting in a, in a recliner. You know, a lot of times in the hospital rooms, they have uh, a recliner. And as I got there, they were getting ready to move him to a new room. They were, they were bumping him up to a suite. And so they were, and really what he was doing, he was moving from the room he was in to the room right next door. And the reason they were doing that is he was in a room with two beds, and they had an empty room, so they were going to move him into his, to his own room. So, so as Les is sitting there in this recliner, rather than make him get up and, and move him in any, or make him walk, uh, they were just going to roll the, re- the recliner in. So that's, you know, cleared stuff out of the way, and they started to roll him into the next room. But, but as they're rolling him into the room, what they were going to do is they were going to keep him in that chair, they are going to take the recliner out that was in that room and kind of just flip them around. But, but I picked up on something the kids picked up on right away too and it was a problem and here was the problem. The recliner in the room he was going to was way nicer than the one he was sitting in. <laughs> and we realized, we all had the same, no, we didn't talk about it, but we all had the same strategy. We were like, we've got to get less in that chair because that chair looks more comfortable, bigger, it just looks better. It just was a nicer looking recliner. It had the same color, the same hospital blue, but it was a better chair. So, um, and, and I didn't, I take no credit for this. His kids were able to make this happen, but, but they, we strategically got to a place where he couldn't, they couldn't roll the recliner around the bed. So they're like, well, we'll just have him get up and move to this chair. Worked out wonderfully. He got the more comfortable chair. But I, but I started thinking about that, that image of, of chair, having that comfortable place to, to sit. How many of you have a chair? How many of you, like, you've got your chair? Anybody got? Okay. All right. About maybe a third of you have, have your chair. When I was growing up, my father had his chair. And I know it was his chair because he'd tell me it was his chair. <laughs> and, and what he would do a lot of times is if he was coming in the living room uh, to sit down and, and watch TV or be there, and, and one of us was sitting in the chair, I was sitting in the chair, he'd just kind of walk up behind you, and he'd just gently tap you on the back of the head, and it was his way of saying, get up, <laughs> and he'd say, you're in my chair, and, you know, we got up, and, and he got his chair, and that was his, his chair, and like I said, we could have it when he wasn't there, but, uh, but when he was there, that was his spot. I have a chair now, so um, I just put it in the bedroom so my kids aren't even allowed in there. So, um, but, uh, but, but a lot of us have, have that kind of spot. And it'd be interesting to unpack what, what our chairs say about us. You know, the kind of places, whatever, you know, kind of place you, you get comfortable, uh, what that means. There's, there's some chairs that become very iconic, become associated with people or, or um, cultural events or, or entertainment. Uh, JFK had the recliner, the, the rocking chairs, and, and for his back, and, and, um, Archie Bunker had his chair, right? Archie Bunker had his chair. And uh, a few later, the, uh, Frazier, I don't know if you ever watched Frazier, but Martin had his chair, the beat-up beat old chair. If you're science fiction, Captain Kirk had his chair. 
right? And if, if uh, you know, you didn't sit in that spot and, and if you, more, more recent movies, if I was a, uh, and am kind of a Lord of the Rings nerd. And so there was the throne of Gondor, you know, the elaborate throne. And there's just a lot of places we can kind of connect this, uh, both in fiction and in, in real life. The, uh, an architect by the name of Whitehold uh, Rubshinsky wrote a book and the title of the book is Now I Sit Me Down. And it's a history of chairs. And I know you're writing that down because you're like, I got to get that book. Um, but it's, it's a cultural history, you know, ancient um, China and, and Europe and, and then American history and, and the, the evolution of the way that, that we sit. And, and a lot of it has to do with social norms. And things have changed in the way that we interact socially, the way that we eat socially. He, he predicts the next big thing will be some sort of a chase lounge, lounger that is designed specifically to support us as we sit and we surf our cell phones, you know, um, because of, yeah, you groan, but, but we do it, right? I mean, a lot of us, that's, that's kind of what we do. So the idea that they, they, they serve a purpose. Now, all of this, all of this leads into a quote that I read from the book, and this is what really caught my attention. And, and what he says is he kind of unpacks this, this, this pursuit for the perfect chair, this pursuit for the most comfortable kind of seating arrangement. He said, we are, um, we're good on our feet. We, you know, we're good walking. We're good running. Um, we're happy lying down. But he said, it's that middle position that is a challenge for us. And he says this, he says, because we're not made to sit. We're not made to sit. And that was the, that was the, the sentence that really kind of got my attention. We're not made to sit. And, and I use that as a lead-in, I think, for what Jesus is wanting to communicate to his disciples. What Jesus is doing in here in Matthew chapter 28, what Jesus is saying to us is, is you're not made to sit. The, the disciples have been through, this is the end, this is coming to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. We're now, you know, days removed, but just days removed from uh, suffering, death, and resurrection. And if there was a tendency, if there was a, an inclination the disciples may have had that, that now that Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to an end and he's preparing to ascend to the Father, that we can just bask in his glory, that we've, we've been through all of this um, trauma, which they have, and, and we've been through all these really difficult circumstances that now we can kind of take it easy. If they had that tendency, if they had that thought that this is our time to just sit back and relax, Jesus puts an end to it very, very quickly. Because what I think Jesus says is another way of saying that you're not made to sit is this. You need to be on your feet. You need to be on your feet. When I played football, that, you know, during water breaks and things, you'd find, try to find a place to sit and get off your feet. And when that breast was over, that's what coach would say, on your feet. Some of you have military backgrounds. You probably heard that, on your feet. That means you're about to be moving, not just on, standing, but you're about to be moving. That's what Jesus is saying to, to his disciples. That's what Jesus is saying to us, that, that we're called to be a church. We're called to be a people in motion. And so he gives this great commission he gives this command that, that has that implication. You need to be moving about the things that I'm calling you to, about faithfulness, about service, about following me. 
And so he, he gets, says these, these very familiar words for a lot of us. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And in that is a threefold um, call, if you will. And I want to just for a few moments, I want to unpack the, the threefold nature of that call, which is their call and is our call. And the first is this. Jesus says, go. Go. Go and make disciples of all nations. But that, that word go is important. That's, that's under, that, that, that is, is really kind of the foundation of his call throughout the Gospels. Is that in, in becoming my student, if you will, like he would with the disciples, and becoming a student of mine, this is not uh, classical education the way a lot of us think about it, which is you go to a class, you sit down, you listen to an instructor. This is, we're going to learn on the go. This is mentoring. Come and follow me. Come and be in relation. Come and go where I go. And that's the nature of, of the discipleship. Well, that's the nature of what he calls us to. He says, you're called to go. You're called to go. And we need to hear that because there's an easy trap that we fall into in the church sometimes. And as a pastor, I fall into it all the time, which is we want to create ministry that's going to attract people to come to us. In, in, the, in the missional circles, it's an attractional thing, that we do something that people will come to us to hear. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. We, we do those kind of things. But when, it, when we become so dominant, and when I as a pastor become so dominant in thinking about, well, what do we do so people will come, we miss that Jesus really is calling us to go. Jesus modeled that when he'd go into the city. He went to where people were. He went to where the outcasts were. He went to where the, the, those who were in, affirmed, um, infirmed, he went to where they were. He went to the people. And we have to be careful when, when our faith and our walk and, our, and our, our ministry, our service becomes about, well, I hope they'll come. Sometimes we're called to be where, where they are, to go. And that, that's important. And then he adds that phrase, go and make disciples of all nations. And, and the, the implication is very, very clear. This is not a faith for a select few. This isn't a faith just for the Jewish people, because remember, all his followers are Jewish. This isn't just for the nation of Israel. This isn't just for a, a particular faith group. This isn't just for a particular people group. It isn't for people that, just for people who have, speak this language or think this way or look this way. This is for all people. And their call is to be the, be the instruments that God's going to use to spread this gospel throughout the world. And if you look at that surface, that's nuts. That's nuts. He has a handful of followers. He has a following no bigger than our congregation. And he's saying to these, these Jewish commoners, these, these men and women who, who have no influence, they have no power, they have no wealth, their only power will be the power they will get in the Holy Spirit, which incidentally will be enough. But he's saying, by the way, they don't have social media, they don't have telephones and, and, and televisions, but he's saying, hey, you go and you get this gospel throughout the world. And then, boy, if they were thinking he was a little out of his mind before. They clearly had to think it then. But that's exactly what they do. They become the catalyst. In fact, I was in a church in Houston a few years ago. It was one of the neatest worship experiences I've ever had. It was a church that was no bigger than we were, where we are. It was maybe, maybe a tad bit, maybe six, 700 people. I don't know. But it was, it was a comparable-sized church. But in this congregation, they had over 50 different languages that were spoken, 50 different nationalities that congregated and worshiped together. 
And, uh, and they had around their worship, uh, their sanctuary, they had, a fl- they had flags of every nation that was represented in their congregation. And, you know, we take for granted now the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ has been spread throughout the world on on the work of missionaries and on the work of others who have taken the gospel. But at this time, Jesus is saying to a small group of of ordinary Jewish people, hey, go get this around the world. And all he's calling them to is, is to go and to be a spark. To go and to impact a life. And, and some do it in, in great numbers. Peter preaches in front of hundreds and, and more on the day of Pentecost. And hundreds and thousands come to faith. But, but there's also a story in Acts of, of Philip. Who, who's called to have an encounter with a single Ethiopian eunuch. To, to bless and to make a difference in the life of one. So it's not, there's not a model that says it has to look this way. That it has to be hundreds or thousands or, or tens. Sometimes it may just be one. But it's a catalyst because a life that blesses a life that blesses a life. We're here because of that chain of events. Go. Go. We're called to go. The second is this. He says to baptize. Baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To baptize. Now we've got to think about that for a second because it's not just the act of baptism, but it's the fact that before we come to baptism, we, we make a declaration of faith. Before we bring our children, if we have our children baptized, we make a declaration of faith. The idea is you need to go in order to bring people to a place of baptism, to a a confirmation, to a a declaration of faith. You've got to tell them about Jesus to begin with. So the call is to go, but the purpose of going and making disciples, the way that happens is you've got to be willing to tell people about Christ. And this is where a lot of us kind of get a little squeamish. Because it's uncomfortable. And I'm not, telling you, I'm not telling you you force it on people. Okay, I'm not telling you you have to jump up in people's face or grab people in, in the line at, at the restaurant and ask them if they know Jesus. I'm talking about, but when God opens doors in relationships, when God makes connections in your life that you have an opportunity and I have an opportunity to tell them about Christ, we need to take it. That is not the time to get shy and quiet. And too many of us, me included, get shy and quiet sometimes. I don't know what they're going to think. I don't know if they want to hear it. I get it. But the call is to be bold in our faith, to be transparent in our faith, to be considerate and respectful in our faith. You know, and if somebody doesn't want to hear it, they don't want to hear it. But that's not for me to decide. I'm called to share, to go, and to tell before people come to a faith that somebody has to tell them and if we don't who will so we're called to go we're called to tell and then that final part is to to teach to teach them everything I have commanded you to teach and there's two ways we do that there's certainly we teach as we share with others the gospel story. As we share with others the things that Jesus calls us to, the things that he has spoken. But we do that most powerfully when we not only tell them, but when we show them. When we live it. And this is hard because Jesus, and we talk about this all the time, Jesus calls us to do really hard things. He calls us to to love our enemies. That's really hard. He calls us to pray for those who would persecute us. That is really hard. 
He tells us things like, don't worry about tomorrow because today has enough troubles for today. That's really hard to do. And to, to govern our thoughts, not just our actions, but he says our thoughts are, 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 um, can, can be as sinful as the things that we do. These are hard things. And so when we teach people about the things that Jesus has taught us, that we've learned, we need to live it. Or we get the hypocrisy tag, which we are all guilty of. All right, let's just own that one right off the get bat. But we need to strive to let our lives be our, our witness and our testimony. Every sermon I've ever preached doesn't mean anything if when I go home to my family, I undermine it all with the way that I live my life and the actions of, of my, my, my life. Now, that's not to say sometimes I don't undermine my message. That's not to say that I don't terribly fall short in a lot of ways from who I know I should be. But the idea is if, if my kids don't see in me some consistency for the things that I say and the things that I do, then I am not teaching them anything. If they don't see some consistency in their mother from the things that she says and the things that she does, she's not teaching them anything. If, and that's true in, in our families. That's true in our circles of relationships. It's true in our churches. We're, we're called to live our faith, to teach it by what we say and by the way we live. I, I was reading the, uh, the account, I was reading an article not too long ago of uh, a young woman by the name of Amanda Mercer. I don't know why I keep having to check her name. I keep having this, but Heather Mercer, that's why I have to check her name. <laughs> um, Heather Mercer, who was a foreign aid worker in Afghanistan, uh, in the early 2000s. And her name is significant because she was one of eight that was arrested by the Taliban um, for, for being missionaries, which is forbidden. Uh, and there is, there's a question whether there was any overt missionary activity going on. There's no doubt that her, her service and her work was fueled by her faith in Jesus, nor any doubt that if God gave her the opportunity, she was going to share about Jesus, but she was arrested for um, overt, or covert, I should say, a missionary activity. And, and she and the others were eventually, in November of 2001, were released. And that's kind of how she, she became known or, or why we know of her. But, but the article was talking about kind of the experience of her entire life. And they were talking about, uh, they were interviewing a friend or somebody that knew her from high school. And, and the quote the, that this person used to describe her said that, that she, she embodied her Christian values, that, that, she, that, that she didn't just talk about her faith, but that her faith was, was kind of lived out in everything that, that she did, and that she was very respectful and polite of others and people who thought differently, but that it was very clear by the way that she lived her life and the choices that she made, that she was a follower of Jesus. And, and that, I thought, was a powerful testimony to who we're called to be. That, that for us to teach is to reflect Jesus in the way that we live. To not only say, hey, we're called to love our enemies, but you know what? To do this radical thing called actually loving our enemies. We're not just called to pray 
for those who persecute us, but you know what? Actually pray for those who are the most difficult in your life to love and, and to try to let go of some of these, this worry that we carry, these burdens that we carry that we don't need to. Again, hard stuff to do, hard stuff to do, but exactly who we're called to be. We're called to go. We're called to tell. We're called to teach. And I started to think about that and in certainly connection with the work of, of Kathy's mom and dad as missionaries and the work of others as missionaries. But the reality, it's all our call. It's not just a few. And it may be on a foreign mission field in Africa or Ecuador or some other place, but it may just be right here in your own neighborhood. It might be in your school. It might be in your workplace. It might be through some other way, but that's who we're called to be. Because what happens is, otherwise we find ourselves just sitting. And we're not called to sit. As a sermon title my dad preached years ago, I'll never forget, was called, uh, Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're not, we're not called to just get comfortable and watch. We're called to engage. We're called to work. There was a, a story, um, a Purdom, uh, Henry Purdom is a pastor and a writer, and, and he wrote about an encounter with a church member years ago who was every time he'd go see him, he was always doing something. He was, he was working in his wood shop. He was building things to give away. He just couldn't sit still, always going, though he was retired. And he asked him one day, he said, why are you always so busy? And he said, you know what? When my brother retired, he got a comfortable chair, and he sat back on his back porch every day. And within three years, he was dead. And he said, it scared me. He's like, I just don't think we're meant to sit for too long. And, and I think there's... Uh, not literal truth, but there's some figurative truth there. I don't want to scare you if you relax, all right? I don't want to know, oh, I'm going to die. Um, you know, that was always, that was always, I think it was, and um, Bill, you might be able to tell me, I think that was always Bobby Bowden's fear. Remember the coach of the, uh, the Seminoles about retiring? Because he, he would talk, I think it was Bowden that would talk about uh, Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant retired, uh, the, the famed Alabama coach, and 37 days after he retired, he died. And uh, Bobby Bowden used to talk about that was his great fear about retiring. He's like, there's only one thing left after that. Um, and, uh, and, but there's not. That's the point. There's not. There's a lot left after that. There's a lot that God calls us to go, tell, and teach. That doesn't, that doesn't end until the day we do step into the kingdom. And so, th- so that's, you know, get on your feet. How, how are you on your feet? How, are you, how am I on my feet moving into the things God's called us to, going where he leads, telling people about our Savior, and certainly teaching, not just in what we say, but most importantly in what we do. Go, tell, and teach on your feet. I pray that's our testimony. I pray that's the evidence of, of, whom, in who, of the one in whom we believe and the, where we have placed our faith. Go, tell, teach. Be on your feet for the mission of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you do call us. And, and we do fall short, and, and sometimes we get too comfortable, and sometimes we, we would just rather sit back than engage. That, that is, is true. And we pray for your grace and your forgiveness when, when that is true of each of us. But, Lord, just don't let us get too comfortable. Continue to stir in us a spirit of obedience and, and a spirit to go and, and to be catalysts in the lives of others where they, would, they will come to know the love of a Savior and the love of God. This is our prayer, and we ask it in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.